Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. This is going to be a fun one, folks, and want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate. I'm your host, James Coons, and we are a neutral platform attempting to let everybody have their shot at making their case on a level playing field. And so if you are sick in the head like us, and you like juicy, controversial debates, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more to come. For example, you'll see at the bottom right of your screen, Matt Dillahunty and Dr. Josh Bowen will be in a tag team debate coming up this month on the topic of biblical slavery, and that'll be against the father-son duo of Stuart and Cliff Nettle. So that should be a blast. Hope to see you there, folks. And want to let you know a few things for this channel before we get rolling into the actual debate. First, if you haven't seen, we're on podcast. So if you want to listen to Modern Day Debate on the go, well, hey, what are you waiting for? See if you can find us on your favorite podcast app. If you can't find us, I mean, we're on almost all of them, folks. But if you can't, let me know. We will work to get Modern Day Debate on that podcast app. And last, before we get into the introductions for the speakers, want to let you know, folks, the format's going to be pretty easy going tonight, pretty much our standard, about 15 minutes, and that's flexible. So if they need as much as 20 or as few as two, they can, but we'll have those opening statements starting with John, then we'll have Tom's opening statement as well, and then conversation for about 60 minutes, followed by about 30 minutes of Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. If you tag me with Modern Day Debate, it makes it a lot easier for me to see it and get that question into the list. So with that... I'm going to introduce our speakers. We are thrilled to have them, folks. This is going to be a lot of fun. And so if you have not heard of the YouTube channel stated clearly, oh my gosh, you're in for a treat, folks. So let me first introduce John, who is the leader of Stated Clearly. And so first, John Perry is a science educator and the founder of Stated Clearly, a website and YouTube channel producing animations about genetics and evolution. Stated Clearly animations have been viewed millions of times and are used in classrooms and museums around the world. He began the project in 2012 with his first animation, quote, what is DNA and how does it work? So thrilled to have you, John. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. Absolutely. And Tom Jump back again. Glad to see you as well, Tom Jump, letting you guys know, folks, Tom Jump has debated professional philosophers ranging from, for example, Dr. Randall Rouser, and also has been on the side of speakers such as Matt Dillahunty in the past. And so we're thrilled to have Tom, who's a YouTube regular debater on his own channel, as well as oftentimes here. We're glad to have him back. And he is linked in the description as well. So you can find all of the links of both speakers in the description, folks. What are you waiting for? They're waiting for you right now. <laughs> and so with that, we are going to jump into it. So we're going to hand it right over to John for his opening statement. want to say... Thank you, gentlemen, again for being here. And John, thanks so much. The floor is all yours. Cool. Great. Let me share my screen with everybody here. So, got some slides. The just just to kind of you know show you what what I'm up to, what I do. 
Uh, I do speaking events, but mostly what I do is I create teaching materials for use in the classroom. And so I've got a YouTube channel, Stated Clearly, and I've also got a website, statedclearly.com, where those animations can be found. And they're used in high school and sometimes college classrooms for, you know, introductions to genetics, evolution, and chemistry. And then I've got a second channel, Stated Casually, where I do lectures. And so over there, I've got one on signaling theory, which is how it is that uh, communication systems, encoding, decoding systems, like we're going to learn about today, actually evolve naturally. This is a really well-studied area of research, signaling theory, and I've got a whole lecture over there that talks about that. I'm not sure if we're going to get much into the origin of the genetic code, but uh, we will be talking about, you know, that the genetic code really is an encoding system. Uh, I've worked recently with the Center for Chemical Evolution. I've been doing animations with them every year. They are researching the origin of life. They haven't focused a whole lot on the origin of the genetic code. That's kind of like later on in the development of life than what they were researching. But geneticists and people in origin of life chemistry, they all consider the genetic code to be code because it allows us, well, because it, it really does act like code as we'll see today, but it also allows us to use information theory, all the mathematics from computing to analyze the genetic code. And that's important in biology. Uh, so the question today really that, that, that I, I wanna be talking about is, does the genetic code work like character or control encoding in machine language? So the zeros and ones in a computer are, are nucleotides inside of codons. Do they behave in a similar way? And the best way to, to do this is to just explain briefly how the genetic code works and briefly how computer code works. And really, I mean, I guess the audience will decide whether or not they're similar or not. But in molecular genetics, there are two main types of genes. You've got RNA template genes that do not use the genetic code. They simply are templates for functional chains of RNA. So the ribosome, for example, which is a major important uh, molecule in our bodies, in our cells, it's mostly made of RNA. And so there are genes that are just templates for it. So in DNA, there's a template for an RNA that ends up becoming the ribosome. And then you have protein coding genes, and these genes actually make use of the genetic code, this thing that we call the genetic code, which is right here. Now, when people talk about, when people say that there's code in DNA or that DNA has a language, they're almost always talking about this thing right here, the genetic code. This on the left, I have the, the classic chart that contains the genetic code that you'd see in a textbook. And on, on the right, I've just drawn the same thing or outlined the same thing vertically so we can easily compare it to multiple different other types of code later on in this, this presentation. So on the left is what you typically see in a book. On the right is what you'll be seeing a lot in this discussion. Um, here we have machine code. This is ASCII. Uh, modern computers use now these, most of them use a variation of this. They don't still use ASCII, but this was used uh, you know, back in the, in the 60s when the genetic code was first decoded. This is what a lot of people were using in their computers. And again, it's just a slight variation of this that's used now. But you have uh, a series of, of letters. Uh, if, you're, if you've got a typewriter, for example, so A, B, C, D, that are encoded into zeros and ones that the machine can understand. And then you also have controls like delete, which are 
uh, encoded in a way that the machine can understand in, in ones in this case. Uh, so here's the genetic code side by side with ASCII. Now, the, the functional bits inside of a cell are mostly made of protein. Here I've got a little cartoon of hemoglobin and each little glob inside the hemoglobin is an amino acid. And uh, the protein is a, is a three-dimensional structure made out of amino acids. And so you've got a bunch of different amino acids. There's 20 of them in humans and they're stuck together head to tail into chains which fold up into three-dimensional shapes. And those three-dimensional shapes are the pr proteins. And according to the different shape that that protein happens to have, it's gonna have a different function. Hemoglobin's function is to grab onto oxygen molecules and release those when, blood go when the blood cell that's carrying the hemoglobin passes nearby oxygen-starved tissue. But there's lots, there's thousands of types of proteins and they they're all shaped differently because they're made out of different amino acids. Their sequence of amino acids is different. They've folded up into different three-dimensional shapes and those shapes determine their function. The amino acids that I've drawn here is these little colored squiggly balls and stuff. They're actually molecules. So here is aspartic acid. Aspartic acid is one of the 20 amino acids that we use in our bodies. And you can see here that oxygen atoms are red, carbon is gray, uh, hydrogen is white and so on. So they're just, they're just molecules. And in the genetic code, the little, the three letter uh, with the lowercase, the little abbreviated things, those are just abbreviations for the name of each amino acid. So aspartic acid is ASP in the genetic code, but it, that's all it's representing. So in your body, amino acids make up proteins, proteins make up cells, cells make up tissues, tissues make up organs, and that makes up you. So the DNA does a lot of different things, but one of its most important functions is to tell ribosomes how to build specific proteins inside uh, the cell. And so you've got your DNA in the nucleus of the cell, and it's made out of nucleotides. There's four different types of DNA nucleotides, thymine, cytosine, adenine, and guanine. And then there are enzymes that, so that's where the genetic information is stored. It's in DNA. They don't actually have little letters on them. Obviously, they're just molecules. But inside uh, the nucleus is where the DNA is stored, and it can't really do much in there. It's, it's stored in there. And little enzymes run along the DNA and make copies of it. They make messenger RNA strands, strands, strands of single-sided RNA, which is a molecule very similar to DNA. And that has uh, mostly the same uh, bases in it. It's got uracil in there, which is different than DNA. But that goes out into the uh, cytoplasm of the cell, where it eventually meets up with a ribosome. But it what I want to drive home here is that these, these nucleotides, they are also just molecules. So amino acids are molecules, the nucleotides are also molecules. Every three nucleotides makes what we call a codon. And so here we have a GGG codon, and it's a guanine, guanine, guanine. So if I, if I show you the actual 3D molecules here, that's what it would look like. That's what that codon looks like. But the whole chain um, is split up into chunks of three that the ribosome can read. So a chain of RNA goes out of the nucleus into the mouth of a ribosome, which clamps down on it, and it reads it three nucleotides at a time, so one codon at a time, and it uses that to build the 
protein chain, which then folds up into its three-dimensional shape. And every three letters, every three uh, nucleotides in the chain of RNA, those act as a symbol for a specific amino acid. So it tells the ribosome, grab this specific amino acid out of solution and add it to the growing chain. And you know, physically what's happening there is uh, transfer RNA is attracted. It's got an anti-codon and it's attracted to the codon and so on. But it, essentially what's happening is the ribosome is getting instructions from the RNA telling it how to build a protein. What type of amino acid should it add to the growing chain next? And the, the tape, the, the RNA tape, it goes through the ribosome, it moves through it. And every time uh, three new nucleotides are hit, the, uh, the ribosome grabs another amino acid. And that's how this process works. So, you know, I said that uh, the codon is a symbol for a, an amino acid. You know, Cambridge Dictionary, a, a symbol is a sign, shape, or object that is used to represent something else. It's very important to realize here that the, the nucleotides, the codons, are not turned into amino acids. They represent amino acids. The ribosome and the, the tRNAs that work with the ribosome are structured in such a way that they read the RNA and they treat each codon as a symbol that tells the ribosome which amino acid to grab next. So the, the codons represent, they do not become, they represent amino acids. And they've been assigned specific um, meanings over the course of evolutionary history. That's, they're not, there's nothing in physics that says that GGG has to code for uh, 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 glycine as, in, as is the case here. So. Here we've got the, the, uh, the codon is a symbol for glycine. It is not glycine. It is not transformed into glycine. It is a symbol for glycine that the ribosome uses to you know, build protein. And there are different here, this chart here, I'm showing you the standard genetic code. This is the one that our uh, nuclear uh, genes use, but they're actually different versions of the genetic code it, where uh, different uh, assignments have been made. So different codons, the codons will, will, will be assigned to a different amino acid or they'll be assigned to a start or a stop function for the ribosome to obey. But there's, you know, so there's multiple different types of genetic code. These symbols had to be assigned and they were assigned by the process of evolution uh, in the ancient, ancient past. So how does computer code work? Now we know how the genetic code works, but first, are there any questions, like technical questions on anything that I showed there with the genetic code that maybe that you would have, Tom? Uh, not yet, no. Okay. So here I have some human-made codes next to the genetic code. So we've got artificial codes next to the natural code here. And we got Morse code. And Morse code was kind of, it was like the uh, grandfather of Bodo code and then ASCII code eventually. Bodo code and ASCII code were both used in computers. And now we use slight variations of, of ASCII code. Um, but the Morse code, you had, you had commands like start and stop. So the start of a message, the end of a message. And then you had, uh, you know, character codes, like you have dots and dashes to represent A, B, and C. And the cool thing about this is you can send it over a wire. 
through electric impulses. So we could transmit messages across the ocean. Bodo code works in a very similar way. You've got zeros and ones or holes and no holes. And then ASCII code is, is the same, also zeros and ones. Uh, and you've got, you've got commands that are represented by these coded symbols. And you've got, uh, in this case, letters of the alphabet that are also represented. So these, these symbols that the, that the machine can read are called character code points or, or control code points. So these character code points here, they're, they're, uh, they're coding for letters of the alphabet, so characters. But you can also have uh, code points that code for certain controls. So in Bodo code, you've got letter and figure. So if you're, if you're currently typing letters and you want to start, or you're currently typing numbers and you want to start typing letters in your message, you have to do the letter shift command, which is 00001. And that will make the machine switch to start typing out letters instead of numbers. And uh, you know, ASCII code has its own uh, controls as well. And in the genetic code, you've got stop and start as different control code points. So these code points are uh, the symbols that the machine can read that represent something that uh, they act as symbols. So here in Bodo code, uh, Bodo code was used originally on tape, like what we see here. And so I've got an F encoded. I'm pointing to an F in the code here. The little tiny holes in the middle are not part of the code. Those are just little, little, uh, little gears would hold onto those and move the tape along as the machine's reading it. But the uh, F is 01110, so, or blank spot, whole, 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 blank spot and actual tape. And here is how the machine would actually work. So you're feeding in, by the way, this is what, back when the genetic code was discovered, people were using these. This was the standard piece of equipment. If you wanted to type out a memo multiple times, you would encode that memo in Bodo code or in ASCII code, which was encoded in physically encoded into little holes in a piece of paper, a, a string of paper. And you would feed that through the machine and it would command, it would tell the, the printer how to print out your memo. And so you could print it as many times as you wanted. And you also had computers that did this. You would write your code in holes that are punched in paper and the machine would physically read that code. And this is how the physical machine physically reads that code. Just like a ribosome reads a, a chain of RNA, uh, one codon at a time. Here we have this machine physically reading the code encoded in this piece of paper one code point at a time. You can see I've circled there, the, these, these little metal pins push up and those cause different switches to be switched inside the machine. And that causes a different key to be uh, pressed, you know, with mag electric magnets and motors and so on. So this, one of, the, one of the things a lot of people don't get about the genetic code, they think that it doesn't count as code because it's working physically. There's physical molecules that are physically in interacting with the physical ribosome. The exact same thing is true in, in machines. Uh, in a computer today, the, the physical parts, you know, you've got transistors, but it's, it's a little bit less intuitive when you look at a modern computer, but it really is a physical machine that's physically reading the commands. I mean, things are not magically encoded. These are the zeros and ones are physical switches, either switched on and off inside of a computer, these, these transistors. So 
this is how this is how the code works. And if we look at the genetic code versus Bodo code here, we've got code points. The code point in the genetic code is a codon, and the code point in Bodo code is you know a series of holes. And but they're they're both code points. It functions the same way in life as it does in our contraptions. It's a really fascinating aspect of biology. But just to just to end this here, uh, Richard Dawkins pointed this out in the River Out of Eden, his his book. He says the machine code of the gene is uncannily computer-like, apart from differences in jargon. The pages of Molecular Biology Journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. So that's my opening statement here. I would say that the genetic code really does function in a way that's important, similar in all the important ways to the code that we now use in computers for character encoding and command encoding. Excellent. Thank you it. very much, John. Appreciate it. And with that, folks, we are excited to jump. <clears throat> we are excited to jump into Tom's opening statement as well. So we'll flip it over to Tom. Thanks so much for being here, Tom. The floor is all yours. Awesome. So when we ask the question, is DNA a code, we have to clarify what we mean by code because code is polysemous. There's multiple usages of the word code. In the technical academic literature, code is just a, a simple kind of a pattern that is Shannon information kind of a pattern. So any physical thing can have a code in it, no problem. But when many people use the term code, they mean there's some kind of arbitrary construction and abstract meaning hidden in the word. So like if you look at the word tree, you can't determine what the word tree means just by looking at the physical parts. Like there's nothing in the shape of the word that determines what it means. It's just, it's completely arbitrary. We, we've, if we've determined that this shape way means this thing and that's kind of how we got it. So there's an abstract component to the word which makes it a human code. And so there's a distinction between a human code which has these abstract arbitrary properties to it and a physical code which is purely determined by the physical constants of the shape of the thing. Uh, and so when we're talking about is DNA a code, which one of these is it more like? Is it more like the human code, which is abstract and arbitrary and we can make it whatever we want? Or is it more like a physically determined system, like a key in a keyhole or uh, magnets attaching in the specific order? And it seems clear to me that from the presentation, the DNA is much more like the physical code, like a key in a keyhole or magnets connecting in a certain patterned way or patterns in a crystal. It's not like a human abstract code where there's some abstract meaning hidden inside of it and you need some kind of a mind to impart this meaning on it. No, it's, it's determined by the physical processes, as, uh, as he said. So when I say DNA does not have a code, I'm specifically referring to those abstract arbitrary things that seem to require a mind to get. So I would agree with everything in the statement, absolutely. It does have the technical code as demonstrated in the biological literature, but it doesn't have anything abstract or arbitrary in it. That's, that's the one claim I want to make in my position. So like in uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia, the, there's a quote that I like to read from that about this, which is the argument in Godfrey Smith and Griffiths that, that uh, DNA is like a language, is that there is one kind of information or semantic property that genes and only genes have 
coding for the amino acid sequences of protein molecules. But this relation reaches only so far as the amino acid sequence. It does not vindicate the idea that gene codes for whole organism phenotypes, let alone provide a basis for the wholesale use of information or semantic language in biology. Genes can have a reliable causal role in the production of whole organism phenotypes, of course, but if this causal relation is to be described in informational terms, then it is a matter of ordinary Shannon information, which applies to environmental factors. Uh, so what that basically means is it's like the key. It's a physical determined system. So it's like a code only so far as the Shannon information sense of just crystals or also have information in it. It's not a code like the arbitrary language that humans make up. We can't just make it anything we want to make it fit however we desire. We can't make a codon 27 length long because ribosomes can't read that. So we can't just arbitrarily determine the start or stop codes in a, in a codon like we could for a language. Like if in Windows, we can change the, the start code to anything we want. We could say it's a uh, chimichanga. We could say chimichanga is the start code and just rewrite an entire language around that. You can't do that with DNA because it is physically determined. The physical shape determines what it can bond with and what it can't bond with and what it can represent and can't represent. And so in that sense, it is not a code in the more general sense uh, that theists use it to mean where there's some abstract or arbitrary concept to it. And that would be, and that's where I'll conclude. From there, we'll jump right into the open discussion. Quick reminder, folks, our guests are linked in the description, so you can hear plenty more from our guests after this debate. But right now, right into the open discussion. Thanks, guys. All right, cool. And so you're, you're talking about, arb what do you mean by arbitrary when you, when you say that a code has to be arbitrary? Uh, we can make it anything we want. We can replace it with anything we want. Yeah. So in a genetic code, the code on assignment actually is arbitrary. And you have different you have different organisms that have a, have different assignments to the uh, code for codon to amino acid, and we can actually make them artificially as well. We've scientists have artificially made new codons, and there's so th there's a question as to whether or not the codons that we use because you could have millions of variations of the genetic code, but we only have something like thirty that we've discovered so far. So pretty much all organisms are using the same genetic code, mostly the same genetic code. And the question is why, is that a frozen accident? Is just one was selected and then all, of, all organisms have inherited that? Or is there something about the genetic code that is optimized for some sort of a function? You know, in, in Morse code, E is the, the, the smallest symbol and Morse code is just one dot, um, no dashes, you know, just one dot. And that's, that's been optimized because it's most common letter. Yeah. It's the most common letter. So, but it's, it's arbit it was arbitrarily assigned, but it's also been optimized for something. So we know that the genetic code is, is arbitrarily assigned because you could have assigned one of million nature could have assigned millions of different codes to it. But one of the questions that origin of life chemists have is, is it optimized for some sort of a function or not? Is it better at coding for proteins and alternative versions would be. And that's still kind of up in the air, but it certainly is arbitrary. I mean, you can, like I said, you can edit it. You can, you can actually change it. You can add new codons. Uh, you can change codon assignments. And some organisms have already done that just within their own system. Can you make a codon this eight long? Uh, you'd have to significantly engineer you'd have to change the, the structure of the ribosome, but just you'd have to change the structure of a computer to change the, uh, um, 
how no. you know how big of a, how big a byte is. You just also have to change the structure of a computer. So no one's ever tried that, but it, theoretically, it's just as possible as it would be in a computer. Yeah, well, I don't have to change anything in a computer to change, make it an eighty-seven letter long start program. It's just you just make it eighty-seven letters and say, well, if you see this, then start. So oh, there's well, a physical change required. It's just it's already there. You're not changing the byte size though. You're you're just adding more bytes. So the the in the genetic code you could add more bytes, but you, to change the byte size, a byte is three codons. Uh, I guess that would be six bytes if you were to convert it to binary, I think. But the um, yeah, you, like you know, you buy you buy it you buy hardware that's either like a what is it? I don't know what the what the byte systems are, but they're that's that's that depends on the machine that you're running. And so, yeah, you'd have to edit the the function. You'd have to edit the machine to change the start code on. So the physical uh, shape of the ribosome prevents you from you making anything more than a three letter currently. You'd have to make a completely new ribosome, right? Just like the physical setup of your machine in a computer determines how big a byte is. Yes. Yeah, but I didn't say anything about bytes. I can make the start code whatever I want. By adding whatever. more, by adding more character, by, by adding more, um, yeah, by by adding more bits to it, you could, but not not by changing the byte size. Yeah, I didn't say anything about the byte size. So, uh, in one of your examples was the start and stop codons. There's a codon that functions right. as the start or stop. So I can make the start or stop code whatever I want of any length I want. Uh, byte size doesn't really make a difference to the start or stop code. That's just whatever it's reading. Well, there are some organisms that require a longer or shorter. Um, series of nucleotides before the start codon, otherwise it won't recognize it. So actually there are, there are variable length um, start commands in, in biology, yes. So like in eukaryotes, I believe eukaryotes need a, big, a longer starting sequence than, um, than, you, than bacteria do. So there is variation in that, yeah, from organism to organism. It's not so much how the ribosome reads it, it's how the ribosome attaches. So the ribosome has to actually attach to the messenger RNA. And one way to get around um, viruses, for example, so let's say that you're, you're being attacked by a lot of viruses, is you, is you could change, and organisms have done this over evolutionary time, they change the length of the, uh, the, the, the number of nucleotides that you need at the start of a message. So that, yeah, you do have changes in length of start uh, in, in biology. That, that is something that happens. Okay, so uh, how does the ribosome read the uh, codons? You have transfer RNAs, which are bits of RNA that are folded up into three-dimensional st structures, and they have an anti-codon sticking out of them. And that anti-codon, um, just like... Just like we saw that the computer has to physically read the code by sticking little prongs into it, you have the ribosome physically reads the code by uh, opening up in a way that an, a specific anti-codon can come in and stick to the codon in the chain of RNA. And that tRNA that has the anti-codon also ha carries a specific amino acid, and the ribosome will then rip that amino acid off and add it to the growing chain. So if a different amino acid hits it, it just won't be able to bond because it's just not the right shape? Right. Just like, just like when the tape goes through the, the computer, the 
the triggers that are physically switched because a computer is a physical machine. It physically works in the physical world. These physical switches are switched on and off. Just like in the ribosome, you have these physical connections that are made or not made. It works exactly. It, I mean, you've got, you've got different molecules involved. You've got different specific parts, but in principle, it works exactly the same. So it's like a magnet or a key. It's a physical attachment and there's no abstract anything to it at all, right? Yeah, there's no abstract anything in a computer either. It's all mechanical, yes. Right, so it wouldn't be a code in the abstract sense, like a human code that we just invent out of nothing. It's a physically determined system. So the code for, for essentially any Windows or computer-based code is something we made up purely in our heads. And then we make a physical system to represent that code. But the code itself isn't a physical system. The code itself is something we made up. It's abstract. The code in DNA isn't. There's no abstract parts to it. It's literally just the physical system is the code. And that, I think, is the difference between a human code and a physical code. So that's why DNA is more akin to a key or a magnet, not a human language-based code. So just comparing it to a computer isn't quite accurate because the code isn't the computer. The code is something we made up independent of the computer, and we then built a computer around it. But the code and the computer are separate things. So <laughs> I think you're confused because if you... If you want to play a game on a Nintendo, for example, we, we agree that a Nintendo uses code, right? Sure. You take a physical disc or whatever you call those and you physically insert it into a physical machine and then you physically touch physical buttons on a physical joystick, which send physical electric pulses through a physical wire. There's nothing like the fact that like everything is like code is physically encoded into machines. It's being physically used. Right. But if we got rid of all the machines, we would still have the code because it was invented by a person. Just mm. to say simple codes like the, the... You're saying you'd have it in their head or something? Yeah. It's, it's something we made up. We literally made it up out of nothing before we built the physical system to represent the code. So just like the codes you listed earlier, those weren't like, those aren't instantiated in a physical system first. We made them up. We just we completely just made them up. We said, these symbols represent this. And, All right, cool. Yeah, evolution did the same thing. Evolution said this symbol represents this in this system. It said that? How did it say that? You know that, I'm, you know that evolution doesn't talk. Exactly, exactly. The meaning, not... the meaning for symbols is an evolved, this evolved over evolutionary time. So these symbols mean nothing. Outside the ribosome, outside the genetic encoding system, these symbols mean nothing. Their meaning only exists within the communication system that evolved between ribosomes and genes. This is a communication system that evolved over gradual time. And the study of this is in um, information, or sorry, in uh, signaling theory, is how we study how, how do you get signals, how do, you, how do you get the evolution of symbols so that the sender and the receiver um, are able to use symbols to communicate with one another. And this happened at the origin of life, well, at the origin of protein coding life uh, in, in the ancient past. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that, but that means that there's no abstract thing there. It wasn't just a, an arbitrary abstract code we just made up. There's a- I'm telling you, it's absolutely code. arbitrary. It is completely arbitrary. We've gone over this, different organisms use different codes. It's not, there's nothing in physics that says, this codon must represent this amino acid. That that only exists in the system once it's physically built, once it physically exists. 
just like in a computer. A computer is a physical thing. It's an actual machine that physically reads Okay, so you're granting there's no abstract things there, so my point is still correct. No abstract. Nothing abstract in it at all. What do you mean by abstract? Tell me. Uh, abstract versus concrete objects. Um, abstract meaning it doesn't have a physical correlate. It's just a made-up category. So do you think that a computer has abstract things inside of it? It's no. made out of abstract things? No. Do you think that your brain has abstract things in it? No, abstract means non-physical. Yeah, so an idea in your head is also, I mean, we're getting to the point to where we can actually physically read uh, ideas in people's heads. This, I agree. Yeah, there's there's no significant difference. I think it, what's important here is to, is to get to why, what I've noticed is that over probably like the past five years, uh, atheists, which by the way, I am an atheist. I've just to make sure people don't get confused here. I put, I put a little ode to Darwin behind me here. So the, what I've been noticing every time I post a video about genetics, if it ever says the genetic code in it, I'll get creationists. that will send me notes that say the, the genetic code is a code. All codes have a coder. Therefore the genetic code required a coder. And then I see atheists attack them and say, no, the genetic code isn't a code. It's only, some, it's only like a code. And they're attacking the wrong part of that argument. The, the bad part of their argument is their claim that all codes have a coder. Biology is filled with systems of encoding and decoding. You have the, the colors of a flower. They are symbols that represent, I have pollen and I have sugar, come get it. And insects that pollinate understand that. And so an insect will see that signal from, you know, a long ways away and go to that. There's nothing about that color that's, that, that color is a genuine symbol. It's, it represents sugar. It is not sugar. It represents the sugar. This is just one of many coding, encoding systems that have evolved naturally. Nature is filled with these. And we understand how they evolve. There are lots of aspects of the genetic code that we don't understand. Uh, aspects of the origin of the ribosome, for example, that we don't understand, but we do know how these coding systems evolve. And if you were to try and argue with a creationist and say, no, it's not really code, it's just like a code because of abstract ideas, they're going to know that you're just trying to evade the, the actual question, which is how on earth were these codons assigned their specific amino acids? How did that assignment take place? That assignment is... Uh, it's mysterious to people who don't know much about how this process works. And it's actually still in large part mysterious to actual scientists that are studying the origin of the genetic code. We don't know exactly how those assignments were made. We do know in general how assignments are made uh, because we study this, we've studied this in lots of other systems aside from the genetic code. So we, we know how symbol assignments are made in nature. Do organisms that are to cooperate a lot of times they'll end up developing a uh, symbol and they'll, they'll develop meals, but we haven't worked it out fully. The code. Okay. Are there codes in non-organic systems? My audio cutting out here. Again. Yeah, a little bit. Testing, testing. Are you better now? Can you hear? No. Uh, you're testing, testing, one, two, three, four, testing, testing. Can you hear better now? 
we did have this just before we went live, folks, and we'll wait for John to reconnect. Do want to remind you that they're both linked in the description. John and Tom have their links. I am going to have to. Before we were testing, I'm going to have to reboot. So I'm going to have to call back in here. No problem. We'll do a short. It'll take just a minute, but you can get questions while I'm doing that. You got it. Thanks, John. And as mentioned, folks, we are very excited. As if you have not heard, Cosmic Skeptic will be on Modern Day Debate. That's going to be very exciting. So do want to let you know about that. You don't want to miss it. That's coming up on the 16th. And so John will be back in just a moment. Going to plug just a couple of events coming up as we are really excited about these folks. So that will be on the 16th on whether or not veganism is morally obligatory. In other words, are you... Is it the case that you ought to be a vegan? Otherwise, you're, you could say, morally behind. And also very excited, though, we have another show coming up in the future that we're pumped about. This one I don't think I had shared about yet on... It shared on air, but now we finally have the thumbnail. And look at that thumbnail. Isn't it beautiful? It's a terrific, tremendous thumbnail, you guys. We are so excited. At the bottom right of your screen, you are seeing a thumbnail for... You guessed it. I don't know if you guys know who Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum is. I was watching a documentary on Amazon, and it was a good documentary. You know, it was like a, it was a Bigfoot documentary, but it was good. So it had 4.5 stars. I couldn't help myself. And I, I listened to Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, and I said, that guy's articulate. I was like, we should try to get him on the show. And so I reached out to him. He's at Idaho State University. He will be on the show that will be on, if I recall right, it's on a Saturday. It's close to 10 days. Yeah, it's the 23rd. So 10 days from today. Topic. So if you think that might be a fun one, if you're like me, and I can't, I got to say it, folks, that's one of the What's most the fun topic topics. What's the topic for that one? Huh? What's the topic for that one? Whether or not Bigfoot is real. And Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum will also, by the way, so he's been on like Animal Planet. He's, uh, he's pretty popular guy when i mentioned him in the chat before i even made the thumbnail people like several people in the chat were like i know who that is and erica erica gutsick gibbon actually said that she'd emailed him before with questions about because you know that's her well not bigfoot but hominids uh is like one of her specialties that she's a grad student for so she had contacted him and basically uh, to ask a question about PhD programs and their, you could say, shared domain in the academic world. And so, yeah, that will be a really fun one, folks. And so, also, though, Tom, can I tell him the news about this huge one coming up with you and Samuel? Sure. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, February 3rd, folks, finally, the first time in a long time, we're going this to have a debate in person. Now, I'm still trying to figure out if there's a way I can, like, uh, make my schedule work to be able to fly to be there as well as the moderator or at least to kind of, like, uh, say What day did you say that you... was? Huh? What day? Fe February 5th, right? Oh, okay. Oh, are you... Oh. Oh, you're... Yes. February 5th it is. And so, you guys, that's going to be epic. That thumbnail will be up shortly. And so, that will be a really fun one. If you remember Samuel Nassan, he was a co-moderator for the debate where we hosted Dr. Bart Ehrman and Jonathan Sheffield. So that's Samuel, if you forgot. But he's also been on here. He's debated. He debated Apologia a long time ago. And so glad to have you back, John. Yeah, yeah I'm back. What awesome. I miss. Can, can you hear everything fine? Is audio good yeah. now? Yeah. yeah. 
All right, cool. So picking up where I left off, are there codes in non-organic systems? In non-organic systems? Yeah. Uh, so far as we know, this this can these things can only evolve. So you can you can have them you can have coding systems be invented through the process of evolution or through the process of, you know, humans coming up with ideas. So are there is there a code in particle systems like the elementary table? No. Why not? What's, how do you define a code here? Okay, I already showed you what a code is. A code has symbols that represent other, a symbol which represents something that it is not. So in the, in the periodic table, all you have is elements. That's a list of elements. There's no encoding and decoding happening in there. A symbol that represents something it's not? Right. A codon is a symbol that represents an amino acid. It is not an amino acid. It represents an amino acid to the ribosome. The ribosome interprets it as, oh, I need to grab this amino acid, and it does. And it does that, it's it's physical, but again, same with in your computer. Everything is physical inside of your computer. So if a triangle could bond with a chevron, which then bonded with a star, and it could only occur in that order, would that be a code? No. Why not? The triangle represents the chevron or the star because it can only bond if there's a, the triangle, then the chevron and the star. I showed you what the code is. Um, it's very obvious. You got You have the ribosome. It interprets a specific codon as an amino acid. It interprets it as that. It, it does not transform it into it. It interprets it as that. Right. That's the same as what I said. So what it said, it reads a thing, sees it, and then because of the shape of the ribosome, it then attaches to a different thing. So so if you have a triangle and then you have a chevron that reads the triangle by attaching it to it, and because of the shape, it then it can only attach to a star, that's the same thing, right? Okay. So you're saying that it can only attach to the star when it's attached to the triangle? Yes. That would be that would be a signal. So we have in, um, in that's how the the signaling system in our hormones work in a similar way. You've got a protein that is only reactive when it's bound to a specific uh, signaling molecule. And that can evolve when you have two entities under selection pressure to cooperate. So yeah, that we, we have a similar system like that. And how is that different from ice crystals? In what way? Well, ice crystals, ice can't form in a perfectly like a uh, perfect clear water it has to have a deformity in it the deformity comes in and then the deformity represents the ice so so the water transfers to the deformity which then because of the shape can form it into ice how is that not exactly the same thing that is not causing that's not causing a specific um, repeatable reaction so you you've got in in the genetic code so the ribosome is going to consistently read, the GGG codon as the, uh, I think it was, I can't remember which, which amino acid it was, aspartic acid or whatever it was. It's going to consistently read it that way and consistently build the system or the, the consistently grab that amino acid out of solution and specifically only grab that amino acid out of solution. Okay, so your original definition of code was a symbol that represents something it's not. Uh, I think the water example provides that. So you're saying there's a, another part to the definition? No, I'm, you're, you're, 
I showed you what the code is. I'm not going to give you a half a sentence definition of a code. I showed you what the code is. I showed you how it physically works. If you don't understand that, then you need to go back and watch the video. Okay, I asked what your definition of code was. I don't, I don't, I don't care about what you presented about the genetic code. I'm saying, what is your definition of a code? Okay, a character, definition... a character encoding system, like in, in the genetic code, is a set of symbols which represent another set of either symbols or objects or commands. That's, that's the definition. Okay, and how does my water example not do exactly that? Um, it's not, it's not commanding the, there's not a set of symbols that are functioning in your system. You're going to have to explain how those are different because I'm not seeing the difference. All right. Well, you don't. Because there's, there's a physical shape, which is the, the codon, and the physical shape then bonds with something else, which has a different shape. And that different shape then bonds with something else, which has a different shape. Um, that seems to be the same as the water example here we have a whole system where these are set up to do this over and over again over and, and over again and, part of your definition and and it constructs it constructs like I'm, I'm not interested in you trying to pin me down on weird things with that with how i defined it on the spot i showed you how the code works and you can watch that and and you can come up with another you can come up you can see for yourself how it's different than the water system uh, well, no, I can't see it because they're the same. Based on your definition, they both qualify as codes. This isn't about pinning you down. This is about you not understanding the the distinction here being in the argument. Like you brought up the the thing that creationists always come up in your in your debates and say, well, all DNA is a code. Code requires a code maker. Therefore, there is a code maker. And then the atheists say, well, it's only like a code. And then you criticize the atheists for being wrong there when they're not because it what, functions exactly like a computer code in right, principle. Right. So, so the problem yeah. here is that what the theist means by code isn't the same as what the technical term of what code actually means. So the kind of code that's in DNA is just a physical system. There's no abstract mind required at all. Same with, same with the computer. There's yes, no I brain agree. inside of a agree. computer. I agree. There's nothing, no brains in the computer yet, but yeah. different topic. Uh, so so the, when the atheists are correct, when they say the theist is wrong, like, no, DNA is not a code in the way they mean code. No, it is a code in the technical sense. I agree that I agreed that in the beginning, but there's a difference between the definitions there. And that's the thing I'm trying to articulate. Like, how do you define code is kind of important to the conversation. If the creationist is saying that the genetic code works like computer code, they're 100% correct. If they're saying something else, then I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else they would be saying. But if they're saying that it, it works in principle the same way that a computer code works, where you have a set of symbols that have been assigned to represent specific things, then they are correct. I mean, it, it really works. You, you, you have code points. A codon is a code point. All you have to do is change the jargon slightly. And like Dawkins pointed out, you could, you could be reading a, a, a computer science book or a biology textbook, and you wouldn't know the difference. It, it really does function the same way. I didn't say it didn't function the same way as a computer. Again, the part I'm saying is that it's not abstract and arbitrary combining those terms if you don't like. It, it is arbitrary. Way. So I'm going to combine arbitrary. those. If it's, if it's not abstract, then my point is correct. So you got to address the abstract one. The abstract language of a computer code as made up by a human and didn't exist in a computer uh, is the part they're comparing it to. The code part they're comparing it to isn't just the physical functioning of the, the DNA and the physical parts, the bytes of a computer. They're saying that that system 
is completely made up by a mind. It's abstract. It doesn't have, it's not a physical thing that's determined there by the shape. Whereas well, for DNA, it is. It's completely physical. It's completely determined by the shape and the shapes of the ribosome and the shapes of the codon and the shapes of the proteins. It's all the shapes, just like a computer is all the shapes. So the only creationist I've talked to about this is Perry Marshall. And he knows exactly how code works in the computer. So when he's talking about computer code, he's talking about computer code. He's saying that um, he, Perry Marshall doesn't understand that we actually know how symbols are chosen through evolutionary history. He, he didn't understand that. So he actually wrote a whole book saying that the genetic code is evidence of God because he didn't understand signaling theory. <laughs> like he didn't know that we already have a, this whole system worked out. We know how symbols form between um, organisms as they're communicating with each other. And we know that it doesn't require a brain at all. You have organisms without brains right. that can develop symbols. I, mean, I so, totally agree. So, so the point he was arguing was like the creationist point. He thinks that this code thing that we're seeing, it's abstract in some part. It requires a mind to abstract this yeah. onto the physical part. Yeah, he thinks that it, you have to have a mind to assign meaning to a symbol. That is not the case. You don't need a mind to assign meaning to a symbol. All you need is two entities under selection pressure to cooperate, and they will start assigning meaning to symbols. They, they don't even need brains. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's an ex excellent uh, way to phrase exactly what my point was. So yeah, I, I totally agree with what, what you just said there. Could you say it again? It was, uh, you don't need a mind to assign meaning to symbols. Correct. Absolutely. 100% okay. agree. Okay. So that, I mean, the genetic code is a naturally evolved code and the meaning for each codon was assigned by the process of evolution. You have two molecules under, under selection pressure to cooperate. It's the ribosome and the gene. Both of them are after proteins. They, they benefit from having proteins. And so eventually you had the evolution of this communication system, the symbol-based communication system between these two structures and you get, you get protein coding. The details of how that happened are not worked out, but in principle, we know how this works through signaling theory. And we have actually worked out the details of many different communication systems in signaling theory, you know, between uh, various insects and so on. So symbols can evolve. They do not have to be there. You don't need a brain. Our brains, all, all what our brains are doing really is they're, they're I mean, there's a lot of aspects of the brain that aren't fully understood, but what it appears our brains are doing is, is really rapid trial and error and modeling of, of what we think is going to happen. Uh, and trial and error is how the process of evolution works. So you, you have... Um, could you talk more about how uh, you don't need a brain to impose meaning on a symbol? Could you explain some more examples of that in a physical system for us? In a physical system. Um, you've got... So bacteria, if you've got bacteria who uh, that, that both produce different enzymes that can digest different parts of the same type of food, and because they both excrete different enzymes, uh, they actually benefit by being near each other because they can both excrete these enzymes and the two enzymes together will digest that food better than one of them trying to just digest the food on its own. You now have selection pressure for these bacteria to be in each other's presence at a food source. And so how this would evolve, how, what, what would likely happen here uh, is that 
the one of the bacteria would end up picking up just through through random evolution of their uh, their receptor proteins they would evolve a receptor that can detect a waste product of one of the other bacteria and so we call that q detection and so it would detect that waste product and it would swim towards that waste product so it's got the food in front of it the food item might be huge and then it has it's detecting that oh my buddy's over there i should go get next next to him so we can excrete enzymes together so it would it would be picking up on a cue it's waste it's it's buddy's waste product and evolution would over time get it to start swimming towards that ally so just the process of evolution here happening uh, just descent with modification occurring and eventually you get this, this one bacteria that can sense the presence of its ally and swim towards it. And doing that makes it eat better and have more offspring. So you just have natural selection working on this. The, uh, the sender of that, of that cue that's excreting the waste product is also going to be to, uh, there's gonna be selection pressure now because it's benefiting as well from its buddy swimming up next to it. There's going to be, a selection pressure for it to increase its excretion of that waste product. And it actually, there's going to be a point where if it evolves um, the overproduction of this waste product, even digesting healthy parts of itself to turn into that waste product, there's going to be a point where natural selection will favor that, even though it's slightly damaging to the organism. And it's going to actively transmit it's going to go out of its way to actively transmit what, what used to be a waste product because it's it benefits by signaling to its its partner that it, hey, I'm over here. And when we have a system that has, in signaling theory, when you have both the sender and receiver that have evolved to change their behavior or learned to change their behavior, uh, we say that the cue has been transformed into a signal. So that's when we officially consider it to be a signal uh, is when both entities are actively uh, reacting to these, either sending them or, or responding to them. That's when we call them uh, symbols. That's when we call them uh, si signals instead of just mere cues. Would uh, it still apply as a signal if they started that way, if they were like uh, spontaneous generation came out as already uh, reacting to this signal, would it still count as a code or would that not count as a code because they didn't develop it over time? Uh, in signaling theory, we consider it to be a signal only if it's uh, if it's either learned or evolved because of the, res the, the response that it invokes. So if they just started that way, it wouldn't even count as a code by your definition? I mean, I don't know how you'd say they just started that way or how you determine that they just started that way. Normally, when we come into these systems, we come into them already partially functioning and we assume that at one point they didn't exist at all. And you can actually piece piece together their evolution. Like, I mean, actually, almost everybody communicates with uh, waste products. Humans, we communicate with CO2 that we're not using. <laughs> you know, we, we make sounds out of it. Um, dogs communicate with urine. So, I mean, that's, that's a really common way, but yeah, when we're looking at how these, these signals evolve, usually they come from just waste products or parts that happen to be there already. Uh, well, uh, this is just a hypothetical, like uh, the, 
in multiverse theory, universes can pop out of existence or many worlds hypothesis, they can change and split. And so we have just an entire universe pop into existence that's like a second away from ours, essentially. And so these uh, organisms look like they evolved, but they didn't, they just popped into existence, quantum mechanical stuff. In that context, would it not be a code by that definition because it didn't technically evolve? I'm not interested in speculating on something that speculative. All I can tell you is that we do have communication systems that evolve where you go from, from cues to symbols through the process of evolution. When you have two entities that are under pressure to cooperate, you, have, you can have the evolution of symbol-based communication systems. Okay, well, another example would be I made up a language that could have been made up five seconds ago. That would still be a code, right? If you, if you made it, are you talking to someone with it? Are you teaching it to someone else? Well, I could, it could just be in my head. It could be Klingon. I'm talking to it with our imaginary Klingon friends. Uh, I mean, in biology, they wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't consider it a signal unless it's being transmitted to something that can understand it. That's just a thought in your head. It's, I guess, I guess you're transmitting it to different parts of your consciousness. So, uh. Oh, right, right. So, I mean, that's my point here is that the technical use of code has some very specific conditions to it in the, in the academic sense. It's not the same as the code that theists are kind of describing when they're all DNA is a code, code to make a code. Uh, Perry Marshall, the, the creationist who uses this argument, he wrote a book on it. He understands how code actually works and he's using it. He's using all the technical jargon correctly. The only thing is he didn't, he doesn't know, or he doesn't accept that codes evolve. Um, so he's, he's just, blinded to that or intentionally blinded to that but as far as as far as uh computer code he understands uh that you've got a machine that can either read this or not read it or misread it i mean if you take boto code and and replace it with ascii in a machine that's designed or that's built to read ascii it's going to spit out gibberish so that's um what would perry marshall say klingon that i made up in my head as a code I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, he's going to say yes. He's going to say absolutely yes. Any language is going to be a code by his definition, any theist definition, because they do yeah. have these implicit assumptions about what a code is, which is different than the academic usages of the code. That's kind of the point. But Perry, Perry would also say that bacteria are using code when they communicate with each other. Um, and he's got a chapter in his book on uh, signaling in, in bacteria. He just doesn't, he, apparently he doesn't understand that these things can evolve, but uh the if if you try and make the argument with someone that it's not code it's just like code you're being dismissive and they know that you're being dismissive it's really obvious it's a really bad argument just instead just talk about how codes evolve like we we have this whole branch of science that talks about how coding systems evolve it's signaling theory and it's it's well worked out it's it, this isn't i mean there's there's entire books on it. There's textbooks on it. Uh, and it's not well known. Uh, but instead of dismissing them and saying, oh, no, it's not really code. So therefore, you're dumb. Just say, okay, yeah, it's, it does function like a computer code functions. It really does. Uh, and actually, now we even have, um, we have AIs that can create their own encoding and decoding systems. This is what... Uh, this is what Google uses for their top um, encryption. Uh, their really, really high, like top shelf encryption comes from AIs that are perpetually inventing new coding systems with each other. 
And so they pass your message through an encoding system that's brand new and then they delete it and then they do another one or they modify it. And so there's no way to crack the code. Uh, well, theoretically there's ways to crack it, but there's no, there's no legitimate way to actually crack those codes. So we have, um, yeah, computer code doesn't have to be invented by a human mind at all. Now we can actually just have computers that invent computer code. So this is um, uh, the mind, the mind, the human mind need not apply. I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that part. But my argument here is that it's wrong to criticize the atheist by saying it's not a code, because when they say it's not a code, the comparison isn't the same. Like, obviously, uh, creationists say that, yes, it's a code like computer code, but they're implicitly including all of these uh, other assumptions they have and what that means, that codes have this abstract meaning that requires a mind. They have that assumption built into their definition of code. And if it doesn't have that, it's not a code by definition. And because they're using that definition, it's not a code by their definition, because that's not what a code is. There's a difference between what they think of as a code and what a code is in the academic literature. I, I've never heard someone say that a code requires abstract ideas. All, all I've heard is that they say that all codes require a coder. And all you can, all you have to do is say, no, they don't. Actually, there's lots of codes that don't require coders. There's a bunch of them in biology, and then now there's some in computer science where um, the there's no mind, there's no there's no brain encoding them, but you have, you have AIs that can that can create coding systems. And there's a whole field of biology called signaling theory. So you don't have to, all you have to do is say the genetic code is a natural code. It's naturally evolved. It did not require an inventor because this is what the process of evolution does. It acts as an inventor in place of an inventor. If you have descent with modification plus natural selection, you get the development of these fantastic, well-adapted contraptions you know, that we call organisms. And these even include communication systems. Like they, we see the flowers communicating with a pollinator. We see that uh, the genes are communicating with ribosomes. This is awesome. This is, this is biology. This is the, the power of the process of evolution. It's fascinating. Sure. Uh, another question. Would you see that plants have codes uh, where they don't actually read anything, like the shape of the seeds falling into the ground or whatever? Was that the seed reading the dirt? Um, no, that's one way. Like in, in all the signaling systems, you have two participants. If it's one way, you call it cue detection. So you can have, so the difference between signaling and, and signaling theory, the difference between a code and just um, uh, that you, you, you do have encoding and decoding, but then you also just have uh, cue detection. And we have this with brains too. It's actually kind of easier to think about with brains. So when I was in, <laughs> Cub Scouts, we would we would go camping all the time in bear territory, and we were told that if you're walking through the forest far away from camp, you should be loud because bears will run away if they hear you. So the bear is an active, it's 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 searching for cues that people might be coming, and it will run away before they get there, unless it's really hungry, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, black bears, which were the bears that lived in our area, they were scared of humans. So if we were just loud then uh, we would scare the bear away because it's listening for cues. But if we're actively, if, we're, if we put bells on our shoes, because you can actually do this too, just put bear bells on your shoes. 
now I'm actually actively sending a signal. I went from passively sending out a cue to actively sending out a signal. So now, now we actually have a signaling system going on. I'm warning the bear that I'm coming. So that's the difference between a cue and a signal. But you can have rocks can be cues, dirt can be a cue, but you've only got one actor that's, that's actively detecting those cues. So you don't call it a code or a, or a signal. You just call it, um, there's no symbols involved. It's just, uh, you've got one entity that's picking up on a cue uh, in the environment. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. So if, if God was the only thing that existed and God made up a language, that wouldn't count as a code because he's only the only one interacting with it, right? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking about when you got two real things. <laughs> <laughs> Burn. Two, Two real things that are really interacting with each other. Um, so a bear and a human, or just a bear and some a, a cave. So a, a bear is also a cave detector, but the cave is not sending out actively transmitting signals to the bear. Hey, come over here, come stay at me. The bear is a cue detector. It's detecting cues. Like when I see this particular shape, that usually means it's a cave. So I should go, I should go look at that cave. Um, so, so, but like you said earlier, if I'm just talking to myself in my head, that doesn't technically count as a code because it's not, there's no two participants, right? Well, it might. I think you could probably divide your mind into different. <laughs> a lot of times when we think, we divide ourselves into different uh, things. I mean, and we do this in software too. You, you, you divide a program into multiple parts and have them play against each other. Uh, and they will develop, yeah, they'll develop signaling systems between each other. So I guess you can, but you're dividing it into two entities to make that argument. Uh, right, and I would say that that's where the distinction, the definitions is going to become obvious is because when you ask these those questions, they're not going to be able to come up with those responses. They're going to say, nope, there is one mind. It is a singular thing of one perfect non-divisible part in our soul or whatever. And so they're going to have this very fundamental difference in the use of the terms, which is why I think that the atheists are kind of right to say it's not a code in the same sense, because I don't think the theists think a code in the same way you do. Well, okay. The genetic code is technically functions the same way as a computer code does. I mean, it is a set of symbols that have a specific meaning and they're transmitted linearly. I mean, you have a, you, the, it's even digital. I mean, you, you actually, you break it up, you could break up a codon into, into nucleotides. So you've got specific digits within the code. It's very, it's very, very, very similar. Uh, oh, I agree. It, I agree that it is very much like a computer. I totally agree. I've, I've agreed with you the whole time through that part. My only yeah. qualm is that with DSU, the code, they have those extra assumptions there. And I think that's the criticism I have of the way the code is used in that argument. Yeah. It, but again, I would just attack that idea and that idea only. The, the only idea that they have that's wrong is that all codes require a coder. That's not the case. The process of evolution can generate a code. It does it all the time. Uh, and and it's it's well studied. This is it's well documented. If you, if you look at um, what is it? Behavior any behavioral ecology textbook, it'll have a whole section on how signaling systems evolved. A signaling system being a symbol-based communication system, how these things evolve. It's very well understood. Well, you, you can do a test. You can ask any of them, like Perry Mason, would it still be a code if God's mind before any humans were made? Or would it be a code in a person's mind if there were no other parts of their brain or whatever? And they're probably going to come up with a different answer to show there is actually a difference there. You just didn't realize it. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Perry's argument 
is very, he's showing how code works. He's showing how the genetic code works. And then he just makes the mistake of saying that all codes require a coder. And that's, that's the only mistake he's making. That's the only error he's making. Well, I'd say, ask him, I'd say, ask him exactly what I just asked you to see if there's a difference. Cause I'm betting there's going to be. Okay. No, he, he might actually end up watching this. So very uh, interesting. This is a great time to jump into the questions. If you guys are ready for that. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And so thank you very much, everybody, for your questions. We're going to start with the first one that came in, which is from Frank's 92 said, love this channel, James. Keep it up, bro. Well, thank you, Frank's. Seriously means a lot. And it's people like you that make it awesome. And the debaters as well. They're the lifeblood of the channel, and we appreciate them. Barry Barry, thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate that dancing pair. Uh, logical plausible probable has entered the building he says epic after show kicks off five minutes after the debate ends open microphone look out for the link and that's right folks no matter what position you take on any topic on this channel if you have an after show we are willing to link it in the description though we appreciate it it'll help us out we can get that link in the description if you get it to us before the debate starts which john did so that's in the description he also says don't miss the after show, which starts five minutes after the debate ends. Open mic discussion. And he says, question for John. Signal theory requires a completed communication system as its starting assumption. Yes or no? No, it does not. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And yeah, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So cues evolve into signals. So a, a signal is an actual signal and symbol are pretty much the same thing you can actually have uh signals that aren't completely symbolic like uh you have the let me just give a tangent here like the the roar of a um of a red deer is a um it's a it's considered a sign type signal because it's an actual demonstration of how big it is that the the tone that it can hit depends on how how what size it is so it's actually it's a sign um, rather than a, or I can't remember what they call it. I think it's, they call it a sign rather than a symbol. But you get, you get the evolution of signals these, from cues. So things start out as cues. Uh, and like, like I talked about with, it, with the bacteria, it starts out by one bacteria being able to detect the feces of a different bacteria, the, the waste product of a different bacteria. And then it, it responds in a way that actually benefits both the individuals. And then the second individual will eventually evolve a way to magnify what used to be a cue. And once a cue is magnified, actively magnified by the sender, it's considered a symbol and you have a communication system, a true communication system. Whereas before all you had is a, is a cue detection system. So, gotcha. Thank you very yeah. much. And next question comes in from dearest friend mark reed says john what happens when there is an error in dna quote-unquote code versus computer quote-unquote code can the computer code function with errors well in this case with character encoding errors um you're gonna have so if you were to change, again, when we're talking about the code, we're not talking about a specific sequence of RNA. We're talking about the way that the ribosome interprets a sequence in the, in the RNA. So if you were to, um, 
change the code of a computer, if you were to, to put in the wrong code in a computer, so if you were to put in, if you have a computer that's designed to read ASCII code and you feed it Bodo code instead, it's going to spit out gibberish. And the same thing with, uh, with the genetic code. If you take, like, so our mitochondria use a slightly, slightly different code than our nuclear uh, genes do. And if you put in a nuclear gene into the mitochondria, it actually spits out, it mostly reads it correctly, but it spits out some gibberish. It does some things wrong. So um, that's what we're talking about if, when, if the, the code is, if there's, if there's error in the code, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spit out an error. But if you're talking about just a mutation, will a, a mutation in a gene cause a catastrophic error in a protein? That depends. Um, it depends on how big the mutation is. It depends on whether or not that mutation ends up really being beneficial or negative. Um, so there's lots of different, there's lots of different things that can happen there. Thanks so much. And next one just came in. This is a brand new super chat from Logical Plausible Probable says, for John, please come to my after show. I think you're missing the point being made in relation to the interpretation. So don't know what he means. This is over my head outside of my specialty, but you were invited over there if you'd like, John. <laughs> and thank you very much for your question. This one coming in, two seconds, loading up. Noah Winslow, appreciate your question, said, can we get a definition of code? I think you guys have pretty much hashed that out. Uh, no, let's say, so that was an early question, by the way. That's why they asked. Awesome AI360 says, is any chemical reaction a code? No. You need to have a sender and receiver and for for there to be a code. You got it? That's, Thanks. Yeah. You bet. And thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a true pleasure. I want to give you guys a couple of updates out there. Thanks, everybody, for your questions. We appreciate them. And remember, our guests are linked in the description. So, hey, well, check those links out. And also, I don't know if I'd mentioned this. If you have, if it's the first time you've been here in a while, we're excited that we are on Twitch and we are at affiliate status, which is cool. So, Dave Langer, thanks for helping us do that. And so, if you enjoy watching us, if you enjoy Twitch more than YouTube, well then, hey, that Twitch link is linked at the top of the chat. So I want to say one last thank you, though. John Perry and T-Jump, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you guys so much for being on here with us. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for John for the presentation. It was a really good presentation, and I do agree with everything in it. It was really great science. So, cool. yeah, thanks again. Thanks. Right. One sec. You guys, so sorry. It's just that it is Dr. Seigart, this is kind of his wheelhouse. So he's a biologist, John, if you hadn't met mm -hmm. him. Uh, he said, great job, John. Really important to separate the two arguments and stop denying science. So sounds like you got a fan there, John. So thank you very much, <laughs> Dr. Seigart. We appreciate that. And so with that, folks, we hope you keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. We appreciate you. And I'll be back in just a moment with a post credit scene to give you updates on new debates coming up. So thanks so much, everybody. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.